I'm Peter Jacoby, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Jerry Souza, music director for the Bloomington Chamber Singers, a remarkable organization that he has conducted for some 22 years and made of them an ensemble that accomplishes far more than one would or should expect from a group of what really are amateur musicians. Welcome, Jerry. It's wonderful to have you. It's good to be here. And right off, I want to ask you, how do you do it? I think we're driven by our passion for music and the fact that we love the art so much and want to bring it to other people. But you tackle some really big projects. I mean, I've looked down the list. I've heard so many of them. But the Bach Passions and the Missa Solemnis and the various mass uh, requiems and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are tremendously difficult for even professional groups. I think that the greater the music, the more the performers strive to make it happen. And what I've found with this group that I've conducted for quite a while is that the truly great masterworks offer so much of depth and breadth that the chorus wants to explore more on their own outside of rehearsals, and they become as infatuated with the piece as I do each time I uncover a new piece. So I think... The reason that we go after the larger pieces is because they offer so much. They are the pinnacles of composers' work in many cases. And they encapsulate not only the the musical style and musical approaches of different composers, but also they're a snapshot uh, of the times. And they, uh, in many cases, reflect some wonderful poetry, too. So all those things, I think, inspire me and inspire the musicians um, to go further than than we think maybe that we can go. But, you know, I give lectures which uh, I express my infatuation with music and I think I infect sometimes some of the people who are listening. That still doesn't answer what you're able to accomplish as musician with musicians. I think that as a conductor, you have to have a number of roles, and it also is dependent upon what kind of ensemble you're working with, what their level of experience is, what their level of so-called professionalism is. And in in my case with this group, I'm lucky to have a group of extremely intelligent, dedicated uh, singers. Now, not many of them um, had a formal music background maybe less than 5%, 5 or 10%, I don't know offhand. But they are all experts in their own fields, so they know how to learn, and they can deal on abstract levels in understanding the totality of a piece. So that being said, as a conductor for this group, I can work on a wide spectrum. I have to, first of all, be 
a technical teacher because a lot of these people can intellectually understand the music and appreciate it, but not necessarily know what to do with their voice at a particular time, just from a purely technical standpoint. And so from that standpoint, a lot of what I do, especially at the beginning of each season, is um, is vocal training and vocal techniques um, to reinforce the things that singers need to do to sustain themselves through uh, the kind of repertoire that we're doing. And so that that's a foundation that has to be laid. And then on top of that, just vocal preparation is the layer of musicianship, uh, to understand the concept of, of uh, you know, rhythmic precision, of um, uh, attention to intonation, of larger phrases, smaller phrases, sort of the syntax of how music is put together. That's a, also a level of what I would consider um, uh, the mechanics of music. Because if the notes aren't sung at the right place in the right time, it doesn't really matter how how much you in, infuse it with enthusiasm, it's still not going to work. And so those those layers, which you not don't necessarily have to do with a so-called professional group, are essential with, with these people. And fortunately, they are so smart and understand where all of this is leading ultimately that 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 level of preparation goes relatively rapidly and we're able then to look at the larger aspects of the pieces that we're performing, the underlying gestalt of what the composer was trying to do. A number of years ago, we had um, an organizational review of what were the uh, what were the values of this organization. And that was, only, I guess it was in 1995, 96, or 97, and at, we had some very good discussions. And out of that, one thing that came clear that has been a lot of what drives us is that the, the singers in this organization love to learn. They are fundamentally interested in what the music is all about, even to the extent that that supplants um, their need to perform the music. So it's this intellectual curiosity also that drives them. And so providing them with more information about the historical background, the stylistic background, and sort of the compositional techniques of of the composer that we're dealing with. Those things together, the mechanics, um, the fundamentals, the the structural, the extra musical elements, all of that somehow has to come together to make an organization like this work, from my point of view. So that also takes finding the right singers, in your auditions. So you're looking for that kind of a person. I am. Finding the right singer is often a challenge because one has to look, of course, for someone who has vocal capability. I mean, people have got to be able to sing, but not necessarily sing in the sense of an opera singer or of an accomplished leader singer. Um, As you know, Choral music is greater than the sum of its parts, and one of the things that makes it such a wonderful art is that people come together, and the result is more than any of them can do individually. It can't be done by one person. The various qualities that I look for when I audition a singer have to do with not only the musical aspects, but also the extra musical aspects. A lot of what makes a choir like this work is the attitude the singers bring towards making music. And so even though I look for the fundamentals of uh, good breath control, attention to intonation, a lyric or dramatic tone, depending upon um, the singer's voice, 
I also look for how that singer thinks about music and whether they have the curiosity that will sustain them in in so many rehearsals because to prepare a piece like Misa Solemnis or any of the great Bach Passions takes an extraordinary amount of time and a lot of detail. And I look for how much a singer who is coming to audition for us um, wants to wants to really delve into the music, to the depth of the music. And that comes from conversations with that singer. So the audition period is, is really brief, but in brief conversations with people, you can find out quite a bit about not only their technical capabilities, but also why does singing drive them? Why is singing so important to them in their life? So you don't just listen to their voices. You speak with them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that becomes an important factor. Right, right. I've always contended that I would rather have a chorus of intelligent non-singers than not very intelligent or arrogant singers. Um, because I think that the, one of the things that makes our kind of music-making work is that the music itself is is paramount. And everyone has to be, to some extent, subordinate to the music. And so the whole concept of a diva or... Um, someone who uh, feels his or her intentions are important at that particular time doesn't work in a corporate environment of making music the way we do. So I, I guess I look for humility to some extent in singers because I think that's an important quality um, because it does mean that that person wants to be part of a of a larger a larger thing, something bigger than themselves. And you want to serve the music. That's right. That's right. You're a very important part of the chamber singers, uh, you lead it musically, but I know that an organization like that takes more to run. So how does the Bloomington Chamber Singer work? I am always weakly amazed at the dedication of the people in that group. I think most people who come and hear our concerts don't realize that the Bloomington Chamber Singers is a self-run, self-owned corporation. We're not allied with any government group. We don't get, um, you know, we get funding from the state. We get funding from the city in forms of grants. But fundamentally, it was formed because a group of people back in 1970 got around the table and decided they really liked to sing together. And over time, it stayed. That's pretty much what its core has been, a group of people that come together every Tuesday night to sing. But the real running of the group takes place um, by a board of directors, which is elected annually. And these folks do a phenomenal job, Peter, in doing all the fundraising, the grants, the corporate fundraising, the individual fundraising, the promotion of the group, the logistics of putting on these concerts. It really astounds me, first of all, how efficient they are in, in doing all of this. And I'm also grateful at how closely we all work together as a unit. Because certainly without a board that's as dedicated as we have and without members as dedicated as we have, we would never be able to mount a Misa Solemnis or a Bach Passion or certainly a B minor Mass because the cost of those concerts are, are considerable. And our ticket prices, as you well know, um, just represent a fraction of what it costs to put a concert like that together. So without without a group of volunteers that love music as much as these folks do, Bloomington Chamber Singers certainly wouldn't exist in its current form, and it wouldn't be able to do the truly great works that, that I really feel very privileged to be able to do. 
So along with musicians, you have consumers. We do. Who are devoted. We do. And uh, together, you put this marvelous chorus together. Yes, that's true. Now, where did all this interest begin? Hmm. How did music enter into your life? Well, there's this folklore story that my mother has told for years, which I think it's found its way into Bloomington folklore some, but she contends, and this may be true, they, she certainly says it is, and I have no reason to doubt her, that when I was three or four, I went to a company picnic and all of a sudden jumped up on a table in front of a microphone and started waving my hands and asked everybody that was there to start singing. And they all turned around and, and looked at this little boy who was waving his hands and they all started singing. And um, that very well may be true because I guess that's kind of the person I am. But from a very early age, as long as I – as as early as I can remember, I was always drawn to to listening to music and then and then conducting it and imagining that I was able to shape the music and that I, I could hear different layers of the music. So when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, I, I studied piano and, and went through you know, various musical training. But I also was was fascinated by what a conductor was privileged to do to to bring together so many different people in making these complex pieces come to life. And your study of music? Uh, I have a um, bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My bachelor's was in voice and piano, and then my master's was in choral conducting. And um, I studied there with a couple of very interesting people. Robert Porco, who has been here for quite a while, was actually my voice teacher, my theory teacher, and my conducting teacher many, many years ago. And uh, he was a, a, just a, a, a real, um, uh, a wonderful teacher. Gave me some uh, solid um, foundations in, in theory and ear training and in vocal production. I was very lucky, I think, to have him because uh, University of North Carolina, the, the music school, is very small at Chapel Hill. I think there were maybe only 10 people in my graduating class because mm. um, it's primarily a musicological um, emphasis there. Um, but it was good to be there. And then the other person was Lara Hoggard. And Lara Hoggard was a, a sort of a Fred Waring, came from the Fred Waring camp. So he was very concerned with choral sound and the beauty of tone and um, vowel production and sort of the Chris Johnson sound of lush, um, carefully honed um, choral tone. Different from other schools such as Robert Shaw, which was a much more dynamic tone. And so I learned from Hoggard how to make a chorus sound good. And Bob Porco taught me the essentials of being a technical conductor and what that amounts to. So it was a great pairing. And um, then I taught school for a year in Dallas, Texas, and decided that I really wanted to go on uh, to a doctorate. And so um, looked at a number of different schools and came here for an audition and met Fior Cantino and met Julius Herford. And I was I was so moved by both of those people in the short time that I met them that I knew that there was something here that I had no idea, that I had not been exposed to at all, and that it was the part of my musical training that needed to be filled in. It wasn't, I knew there was something missing about my understanding of music. I didn't know what it was. When I came here and just began talking with them, I sensed deeply that these people understood this much more than I could even imagine. 
And so I was very excited about the opportunity to come to IU, and I was accepted, and I did my doctorate here. And it was a wonderful experience. And what was it you gained here? I gained a, a sort of a, a, a two-pronged, I guess, set of tools, or, or you know, two, two sets of tools, I guess. Dr. Herford, Julius Herford, was um, uh, taught a score study. He taught a score analysis. So with Dr. Herford, we looked at a B minor mass, for example, and it, we might study B minor mass for an entire semester, measure by measure, looking at the compositional techniques, looking at the history behind the mass itself, behind box output at that particular time, behind the social economic uh, state of Germany at the time that, that Bach put that together. So it was it was complete immersion in what the piece of music itself was. And Fiora, well, Dr. Herford always said, "Well, Fiora is Italian," <laughs> and what we what, what he meant by that, and I think what it what it meant to me was that. Fiora has this wonderful ability to create music from looking at the intersections of the words and the music and seeing how that intersection um, generates uh, the beauty of the piece. She was a Boulanger um, student, and she brought to us um, a real depth of understanding about the subjective part of making music. Why? Okay, you feel this way about music. You think it should go that way, but but what does that really mean, and how can you justify that it should go that way? So it, it was um, it was connecting the emotion to the music. Dr. Herford was connecting, I think, the the mind and the analytical part to the music. So it really was a right brain left brain pairing between those two wonderful teachers, and there was a a loving push pull between both of them. We would study the same pieces in conducting that we'd study in score study, and so my foundation, as the foundation of many, many people in this country, was really built through studying with Dr. Herford and also studying with Fiora. Well, let's let's listen to some music. You've brought a number of things. Uh, what would you like to insert here okay. at this point? I think let's listen first to some Bach. Um, I've done St. Matthew Passion a number of times, and I brought today... Uh, our recording of St. Matthew from three or four years ago. Um, the selection I'd like to listen to um, with you is Machadish, which is the solo that the baritone sings right towards the end of St. Matthew Passion. And he sings Machadish mein Herzerein, which is make make my soul pure. And it, it is this um, this longing to take all the suffering that Christ has done and now the soul itself comes and takes that redemption and that gift that the Savior brought and expresses it that now as a, as a parishioner, as a congregational member, I want to make my soul pure as well. Let me let all earthly desires out. Let me let Jesus come within me. And I find my spirituality through music. The words of the gospel speak to me through the magical way that Bach interprets them. And this solo, which is just, I think, excruciatingly beautiful, is, is an example, I think, of, of why we look to these great composers for answers that are not only musical but also spiritual and, and, and very profound in, in their way. Who is the soloist? His soloist is Joe Boytel, who was a student here a couple of years ago. 
We have just heard a baritone solo about purifying the soul from the St. Matthew Passion, a performance by the Bloomington Chamber Singers uh, a few years ago. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Jerry Souza is with us in the studio today, and he, of course, conducted that performance. Uh, how do you choose your programs. Now, you sometimes you have the old masterpieces. Sometimes you choose new music. Uh, new, new masterpieces are totally new music. And then sometimes you have collections, combinations. As an organization, we decided a number of years ago to, to consciously uh, keep a balance in the kind of repertoire that we do. So our normal pattern for a given year is to do a fall concert, which is primarily a cappella or small ensemble pieces, and then do a masterwork in the spring. So that's one of the first guiding principles is the number of forces that are actually involved. Then I overlay that with a look at how we are addressing and choosing different styles from Renaissance music all the way up through the 21st century and try over a number of years to choose pieces that um, that represent all those different styles as much as possible. You have to overlay on top of that different languages. And so there's kind of a complicated multidimensional matrix that I sort of keep in my mind of what we have done and what we have not done and how that plays out. Now, that being said, I sort of go into a year knowing what we haven't done for a while. And that creates the first the first set of options for me. Then I have to decide how I want to wrap those. Now, in the case of a masterwork, like this year we're going to do uh, B minor mass, it exists on its own, and B minor mass takes a, a chunk, and we're going to do that in the in in the spring. And so that immediately also helps me balance what my remaining repertoire would be. So I usually start with the masterwork, and then pair something with that. Then the decision is, should I go with a thematic overview for the fall concert, or can it exist um, with a single a cappella piece as an anchor with other pieces that supplement it? And more and more, I've been, I've enjoyed putting together thematic concerts, and we've been doing them for quite a while, uh, so that, if you remember, we did a whole set of concerts that sort of looked at different seasons. We did spring song and summer song and autumn song and winter song. Um, we did something called December Stillness. Uh, we looked at music of the Americas. And so there have been a number of themes that, that sort of been unifying. And then I try to make the decisions within those themes um, stylistically and musically varied. This year, we're, we're going to look at two different forms, and we're going to compare them chronologically. So we're going to look at – we're going to do a concert called Masses and Madrigals. And so we're going to do Renaissance, uh, um, Renaissance Mass, the Mass in Four Voices by William Byrd, and then a piece that was just written, the Misa Celebica of Arvo Pert, who is an Estonian composer. And, and they both are amazing pieces, and they actually are so, very similar in a sense. They both have a mystical, um, very um, disembodied quality to them and very reverential. 
And then the madrigals, we're going to look at um, a number of madrigals by Monteverdi, and then we're going to we're going to look at madrigals by Morton Lauritsen, who is a contemporary composer who wrote a series of madrigals on Italian madrigal texts. And so I look to put together programs that have some degree of symmetry and some degree of balance, but also over the years give our, both our listeners and our chorus a, a, a pretty good balance from the different periods, styles, and um, types of combinations of voices that, that we can draw from. Well, this is quite a load. I mean, not only do you do those two, but you also do the Messiah sing in between. Now, you you meet once a week? Yeah. For, uh, <laughs> we for do. how many hours? We meet, it is amazing, actually. We meet once a week for two and a half hours from 7 to 9.30 on Tuesday nights. And one of the things I love about this group is that it has developed a value that nothing in their lives gets in the way of that Tuesday night rehearsal. And so we have virtually excellent re- attendance. Um, there are very few times that people miss. If it weren't that way, it would be very difficult to do what we do. So we've got this dedication um, of these, these remarkable people that sing. And when we work for two and a half hours, it's, it's pretty intense work. Now take me through a rehearsal, will you? Sure. Everybody gathers. We rehearse at the Unitarian Church, which is a beautiful space, and we're very privileged to be in that space to rehearse. It's one of the best spaces in Bloomington. So everyone gathers between seven quarter to seven, seven o'clock, and uh, there's we have about 70 singers or so. And they gather, and as they do, they do the things that people coming together do, talk to each other and get some updates. Uh, right at seven o'clock or as close to that as possible, I try to start, and we start with a warm-up, which is usually a physical warm-up, a breathing to get everyone centered psychologically in what we're about to do, some stretching exercises just to get the body connected. And then the warm-ups themselves take maybe five to ten minutes, maybe 15, depending upon what we're going to do. Mises Solemnis, for example, is a piece that had a huge vocal range, and so uh, often we would have to vocalize longer to make sure that all the ranges were really expanded to their full extent. Um, Then depending upon where we are in the preparation of a piece, we'll either read a piece straight through, and sometimes it'll stop. Most of the times it'll go pretty well with people reading their their parts um, uh, straight through. And then once we've read the piece straight through and they've had some idea of what the music is all about, we'll begin working on it at at a fairly detailed level. And there are various layers to that. So the first thing we we normally have to do is look at the language and um, have to understand the pronunciation of the language, the syntax of the language. If we're working in in a language other than English, it's really important that people understand how the parts of speech of another language work together because a composer will construct melodies based on the hierarchy of the syntax of that language. And so to understand where a prepositional phrase starts is really important because it, it, it helps you inflect the melodic lines um, uh, much more naturally. And, and that's so much more, and this is where it gets complicated because it's so much more than just crescendoing or decrescendoing or singing softer here or giving a stress on this particular word. It really has to do with the natural flow and the natural cadence of the language and how that has to be overlaid on top of whatever melody the composer chose. So we study the language very carefully. Um, how it's put together, what the words are, and then, um, and then the diction, um, and and there it can get 
somewhat subjective because depending upon the language that you're in, there are different dialects that you can perform in. And so we have to make a decision. I make a decision about what particular type of Latin we will use, whether it be Germanic or Roman Latin. And once people understand the language, then we can apply that language then to to the notes and make sure that the language weds with the notes correctly. And overlaid on top of that then uh, is are all the other things that have to happen, the balances among the voices, um, the different colors that the voices would use, um, whether there's vibrato, non-vibrato, um, how you handle cutoffs, how you handle attacks, um, how you handle consonants mechanically. So there are many, many layers to it. Um, so, it, But generally we work from the, I would say, from the general to the specific. We start getting a general idea of what's going on and then get specific layers uh, put into place. Now you brought a recording uh, conducted by Philip Harawega. Uh, Harawega, yeah. The, the Brahms Requiem. Yeah. Does he do behind the scenes, do you think, what you are doing? I, I'm sure he does it much better than I do. But his music, when I heard Haravega's music for the first time, I really was um, stunned by how beautiful it was and how naturally it reflected the text and I think that was that was the main thing that I heard in his music. I, the first thing I heard of Hera Vega uh, was uh, was his B minor mass, uh, Bach's B minor mass. And I spoke about Fiora Cantino earlier. Fiora is a genius in bringing text to life. Um, it, it almost has a life independent of the music. It's as if there was a poet who had deep passion who was just reading that. And then if you take that kind of passion, that kind of cadence, and marry it with the melody and you can truly do that, then the text jumps to life in a way that that is truly extraordinary. And Haravega, to me, also embodies that approach of understanding the, the, the essential marriage between the cadence and the syntax of the language and the syntax of music itself. And so he's become, for me, um, kind of a hero in, because in, that's what you try to do. Because that's what own. I try to do. I mean, I go from the text, okay. and and it seems to me Haravega goes from the text. So this movement that that we've selected, this is the last movement from uh, the Brahms Requiem, and the text is Zelig Zinti Toten, uh, Blessed Are the Dead. Uh, All right, let's listen to the end of part part of the end of the Brahms Requiem, Philip Haravega. Part of the ending of the Brahms Requiem, as led by Philip Haraweger, who is one of the idols of our guest, Jerry Souza.
Jerry, running a community chorus, I doubt that that means you've got a big salary. Hmm. How do you make a living doing that? (laughs) Well, that brings up a whole different story. (laughs) When I finished my degree here, which was around 79, the first job I had was as a um, conductor um, director of music at the University of New Orleans, which was a large college campus. And I was there for four or five years. While I was there, it was during the time when the Apple computer was first released. And I had always had a fascination with math. And even when I was a student, computers, of course, we didn't have computers except for the punch cards and and the um, punch tape when I was a student. But I was very fascinated with with the logic and and the mechanisms behind computers. And so while I was teaching there, I got an Apple computer and um, began poking around at it and found that I was very, very interested in it and sort of developed this whole um, secret life of learning about computers the same time that I was teaching down there. I was teaching conducting and doing the choral ensembles. Well, I came back to IU in 83, 84, and when I came back here, I got a job as um, a computer programmer for a small company that was writing educational software for Macmillan Apprentice Hall. And I sort of talked my way into having this job because there weren't very many programmers at that time. And then I I went to Dartmouth to teach at Dartmouth. I got a, um, a took a sabbatical replacement for somebody, and that was the same year the Macintosh computer was released. And at Dartmouth, everybody got a Macintosh, and it was also the place where the language Basic was invented. And I saw an opportunity to write music software. That I the things that I was teaching in music theory could be taught, a lot of them could be taught very efficiently through computer-assisted instruction. And again, Peter, that was really early in the whole thing. That was before anybody was really thinking in those terms. And so I did a lot while I was at Dartmouth about uh, with with developing some software and learned from the people there that were, that were just great in that field. And my career then took a turn. I had no no expectations that it was ever going to turn because I got very fascinated in using computers in education and um, uh, was involved in a company in Bloomington for a number of years. Um, uh, We had some 70 people writing uh, computer software and um, then went to uh, a larger corporation and and worked on a management system for helping schools track students' progress using using software. And then eventually I went to a company in Indianapolis who developed software and educational software and information systems for large agricultural companies. So it's kind of bizarre that I went that way. But my primary vocation, my money-making vocation, became um, uh, computer design, interface design, software design, and development. I was the university here for about five years. I worked in the Center for Excellence in Education, which was a facility that was funded by AT&T in the new education building back in the early 90s and explored the whole concept of a virtual textbook and what it what it implied. So I was fortunate to have that income stream and ran alongside that of the music. 
And so, uh, but that's hard work doing writing software, especially back in the nineties, uh, late nineties, when it was such an intense period. It was such a boom period for for technology, and was working full time and pretty much got burned out. So, around two thousand one, uh, I just decided that I would um, just do the music. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And I I, I also work now at. St. Mark's Methodist Church, and I'm the uh, director of music there too. So um, that I, sounds more I humane have, or something. I, I'm pretty pretty lucky to be able to but do what I do. But you dealt with new things technologically, and sometimes you deal with new things musically. Mm-hmm. You have uh, you and the chorus have performed some very new works. How do you choose those? Well, it depends on the pieces, of course. In, over the span of time, we've we've premiered a number of pieces, for example. One of the most interesting experiences I've been involved with was when we premiered Carrie Boyce's oratorio, Dreams Within a Dream, uh, back in 2000 or so. Um, in that case, um, I was involved in working with Carrie as that piece came to life. We commissioned that piece, and uh, Carrie wrote it with us and for us. We've also... Uh, done some other pieces. We did a piece by James Underwood, a master St. Francis of Assisi. So we've looked at working with local composers. When we did Spring Song a number of years ago, one of the things we did was it was based on, on a legend of Taliesin, which is a, a, um, a Celtic legend. And uh, we went to the high, we went to the elementary schools here and asked the teachers to tell the students the story of Taliesin. And then the students either drew pictures or write poems or wrote poems. And then we took those poems to local composers here, to David Baker and uh, Carrie Boyce, Malcolm Douglas, and Donald Erb. And those composers then took from the body of the uh, poems four that that they uh, found interest in, and they set those poems to music. And so that sort of became a project that incorporated not only the school students but also us and some local composers too. So I try to uh, work with with local composers and developing composers in producing some of these new works. That must be interesting, uh, actually being able to work with the composer. Yeah. I, I, the time that I was working with Carrie was really a fascinating time because – Carrie would bring us bring me sketches and I would look at them and they were really amazing and I might offer suggestions about how it might um sing better sometimes or how that might that pairing might be too difficult to make sound good to make uh, to make sound uh, well in that particular case and um it was very much a give and take situation I'm not sure whether that's the norm I, you know, I haven't worked with enough composers to know that but in 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 the case of Carrie it was a very interesting reciprocal process and very symbiotic because he would give ideas out and I would give ideas out and we go back and forth You're in a community Bloomington that has an awful lot of music and has a lot of choruses there's choral a plenty uh, at the university there are church choirs there are other community groups. Uh, where do you fit in? Uh, what are you trying to do with the Blooming Chamber Singers? What's the philosophy that guides you and your singers? Well, our mission is to 
provide opportunities for people in the Bloomington surrounding areas to appreciate, learn, and perform choral music. And that pretty much embodies it. I mean, I think that we're so fortunate to live in, in, in this area um, with, with great choruses at the university and great teachers and great conductors and students there. But Bloomington Chamber Singers is one of the few organizations in town that offer the opportunity for experienced singers to perform major works. And so I think we fit a really important niche. I am increasingly concerned, as you are, as, as we all are, I think, in what is the future of so-called traditional classical music. The, the schools these days are being cut more and more. Um, students that are coming out of the junior highs and high schools don't have the background that I had, certainly, in uh, just being exposed to um, to mainstream traditional music. And that concerns me. And so I think that an organization like BCS also has an obligation to bring the importance of choral music to the community so that there is an opportunity for people that might not normally get exposed to that in the educational sense to hear that music. Um, one of the things that we're exploring this year in particular is how we can expand our own concept of educational outreach. And we've got good things going on in our schools here in Bloomington, but I think that there's opportunity more and more for um, exposure to the students. It's interesting that um, th this year I've also had, and in my auditions that we've just gone through, I've had uh, I had two really talented high school students come and audition. And we've had that, um, we've had the opportunity to work with some high school students a number of times in BCS where they don't have another outlet and they want a more um, intense choral experience. And so I brought them into Chamber Singers. And in, in a number of cases, those are the people that have gone on to uh, musical careers too. So uh, That's encouraging. Isn't it, it is very encouraging. So I, I think that what we try to do is just make sure that there is an opportunity for those people that love choral music to be able to perform it and listen to it, and also an opportunity for those who may not know what we do to listen to it and hopefully um, be drawn to it. Well, we're running close to time limit, and uh, we want to get to one more piece of music. And this, again, I think is the Bloomington Chamber Singers, Mendelssohn's Elijah. That was certainly another major uh, project for your group. What have you selected from there? We did Elijah in 2007, and I've selected the final chorus from Elijah. And this was a wonderful project because it was an example of how much I love being in Bloomington because not only do I have this wonderful group of people with whom I can make music, the chamber singers, but we also have such close ties to friends at the university. And so Elijah was Tim Noble, who's extraordinary, was our Elijah. The soloists were Marianne Hart, Al Bennett. And we were able then to, to mount a production that was really special for all of us because it was a, it was a real town and gown merge. And uh, the orchestras, we also get such great orchestras here. I mean, we're so blessed that the orchestras that play with us um, are as good as you'd hear in any major city. And so I think Elijah, for many of us, represented kind of the best of what BCS is, that it, that it provides an opportunity to build this great music from a volunteer chorus 
but then marry that with a virtually professional orchestra and certainly professional level soloists. So this is the final chorus from that piece. have heard the conclusion of Mendelssohn's Oratorio, Elijah, as performed by the Bloomington Chamber Singers and Orchestra, all led by the gentleman who's been our guest in the studio, Gerald Souza. Jerry, I want to thank you for being with us today. And uh, all I have to say then is I am Peter Jacoby, and I'm here for Profiles, Thank you very much for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.